Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London, you just never know. This week we come to you from the nation's capital, Washington, D.C., coming to you from the Marriott Wardman Park. What a historic hotel this is. We are happy to welcome her back, the style letter at the Washington Post, Roxanne Roberts. How are you? I'm well, Peter. How about you? Okay. Well, you know, Washington always being consumed by politics, Washington always being consumed by scandal and and craziness. But guess what? Attitudes, you guys are also quite resilient here. Well, we're resilient in this sense that everything that happens seems to be a crisis at the moment. And it takes some cooler heads and usually some historians to say, wait, this isn't the first time the United States has gone through some serious stuff. And but we are we are at uh, some uh, historically important administration. Uh, we're in a moment where a lot of people are rethinking what they want from government. So it's pretty interesting. Okay, and how are you rethinking it? Because you live here. I I've always said I think I might have even told you this. The people that live in Washington have come here because they are all 
in their own way, by their own definition, very patriotic. And I, I think all Americans are patriotic, but if you decide to devote your life to Washington, then you have this sense of trying to do something that's greater than yourself. So you get a lot of very smart, very passionate people. And I think everybody here is on the edge of a nervous breakdown, but they're also sort of energized and excited. It's a, it's a fascinating time. It is. Yeah. And, a, and, a, and a, an excellent opportunity and time to, to actually visit Washington. Yes. I would say um, it's a beautiful city regardless of politics, but I think the idea that you can go sit in on a Supreme Court um, session. Which or, is what's bothering If you haven't done it, you should. Oh, it's. I think it's amazing. You know what I love about it? Yeah. The question parts. When the judges start asking the questions. Because there's always one judge who never asks a question and hasn't asked a question, I think, in 40 years. Well, are you talking about Justice Thomas? Yeah. Yes, no, he... He, he actually asked one a couple just, days ago. He asked one within the last month or two, yeah. but he hadn't asked one for three years. But I think <laughs> seeing these institutions that are part of every high school and elementary school education, seeing going to see Congress, seeing the rooms in which walking the halls of Congress, going to your congressional uh, representative's office, all those help humanize what a lot of people, you know, a lot of candidates run against Washington, but all of those institutions, Congress and the Supreme Court and going on the White House tour are all the mechanics of what makes this democracy. And I think any time you can see it in terms of real people doing real things instead of sort of this weird place that you see on television, it's a great education in civics. Well, for me, we take so much for granted, I totally agree with you, that how many different congressional hearings are being done at any one time where anybody can go sit and listen? Absolutely. And talk about great theater. Well, I mean, listen, if, if, if you want to get a nap in after a long day, some congressional hearings will absolutely do that for you. Yes, but, yes. soybean quota in the agricultural community. But I will yeah. say this, is that it's very useful to understand how the process works. You know, congressional hearings happen because there's some significant issues on the board. And contrary to a lot of the stereotypes, I take a lot of the work that goes on here at face value. People are trying to do good things. There's a lot of theater and a lot of drama right now, but the day in, day out process of attempting to govern is a profound thing and shouldn't be taken lightly. It really isn't. There are people up there who deeply care about the people they represent and they're trying to make something happen and something that can be as boring as a soybean hearing might in fact have a huge impact on the lives of a lot of people that are being represented. Exactly. And that's where the passion comes in. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah. I think that's a good thing. And I also think it's just good. You know, there's nothing more fun than actually getting a chance to talk to a senator or talk to a congressman and realize they're just people. You know, everyone thinks, ah, they're the, the devil or the angel. They're people like the rest of us. So Roxanne Roberts goes to Washington. Roxanne Roberts goes to Washington. <laughs> right. Why not? Well, I but, mean, sometimes, but sometimes if you live here, you're too close to it. Sometimes you just don't see it. Well, you know, I do think, and it's an old stereotype that people in Washington don't go to the museums and don't do this stuff. And that's true. But, but, and just as it is that people in New York don't go to the Statue of Liberty. Exactly. But I do try, when I drive in every morning, I, drive, I live in Virginia, and I drive in and I pass the Washington Monument 
and or I'm downtown and I pass the dome of the Capitol. And I try to take that in in terms of what that all represents yeah. uh, because I don't want to be jaded and I don't. But I'm from the Midwest, so we don't really do jaded very well. Where are you from? I grew up in Minneapolis. OK. Yeah. So so I my son teases me about Minnesota nice, but I don't want to become jaded. But wait I think a second. There's so important. much to be said for Minnesota nice. I think there's a lot to be said for Minnesota nice. I think that sort of the essential decency that comes from When that. I first went to, you know, there's the old Groucho Marx line that you would never join a club that would have you as a member. Yes. And I went the first time I went to Minnesota. People were so nice to me. I thought they were, they'd mistaken me for somebody else because I had no idea why they wanted to be nice to me. And it had nothing to do with me. It's just who they are. Well, I, listen, they're good people everywhere. I think the, the New York gets a bad rap because everyone's in a hurry. But if you need help, and, and I was just in New York last week, and I, I didn't know which subway to take to go to a specific place. And, you know, and I tried to find someone who I thought might be nice to me. <laughs> and, and he was lovely and gave me the direction. So I think it's just a question of there are great people everywhere. It's just taking the time to find them. Well, it's also taking the time to have a conversation. Yes. Uh, anybody who walks down the street looking at their phone is missing out. Yes. And and I think, um, you know, there should be some rules about no phones at restaurant tables while you're dining i think that connection of going back and forth is a really important uh, oh, yeah. and having those dinner conversations uh that don't involve i do say that however there's nothing you can't really do bar bets anymore because you can look things up on google <laughs> right away it's true yeah. but it still doesn't uh it still doesn't remove the essential need to have a conversation well Another secret of Washington is that this is a town that is consistently built on relationships and trust. And there's been an erosion of trust recently. But oh, yeah. if you talk to any politician, they will say that the only way things get done is if you trust your colleagues and you, you trust that their word is good because that's part of the process as well. In your experience, what's the biggest misconception about Washington, D.C.? I think that the biggest misconception is that it's sort of wonky and uninteresting. I have lived in Washington now for 31 years, and it's one of the most interesting towns I've ever been. Um, you're, it's full of people who are very smart, yeah. not every single person, very smart, very driven. Well, it's full of people who think they're very smart. Well, the old, Come on. you Come know, on. the old line is, you know, everybody was class president and then they get here and are shocked to realize they're not the smartest person in the room. Exactly. <laughs> and I always love that. Yes, there's there's a lot of ego. There's a lot of arrogance, but it's all rolled up in this sort of experiment that we call the United States. And this is the nexus for it. And another thing that doesn't get mentioned a lot is that it's a great place for women because women are expected to be smart and articulate and engaged. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Next guest has been on the show before. I always love having him back because if the truth be told, he's got the job I want um, because I am the kid in the candy store when it comes to aviation. He's the chief curator at the National Air and Space Museum, of course, run by the Smithsonian. Peter Jacob, how are you, sir? Just fine, thank you. And nice to see you again. Nice to see you. 
I'm going to start with, with an anniversary we've just had. And it, it makes me feel really old when you think of technology. But 50 years ago is when the Concorde first flew, 1969. Didn't go into service for a couple more years, but that's when they built it. Yeah. Well, I'm, and of course, it was designed uh, a few years before that in the sort of technocratic age where we were uh, uh, preparing to go to the moon and we were going to have supersonic transport. And uh, while we're looking back nostalgically at, at those times and uh, appreciative of those technologies, we're not flying supersonic anymore and we're not going to the moon anymore with humans. Although uh, under the new FAA reauthorization bill, they've given permission to, for more R&D work on supersonic commercial passenger planes. And I think by the middle of next year, 2020, you will see uh, some of those prototypes start to fly. Uh, and the interesting thing about that, Peter, is first of all, they're not going to be as big as the Concorde we remember. They'll probably be 10 to 12 passenger jets. That'll be much more efficient. And certainly, they won't necessarily be costing passengers any less, but at least they might actually make some money. And the interesting thing about this is, you know, one of the biggest challenges for the for the supersonic transport, otherwise known as the Concorde, was there were noise restrictions in place and speed restrictions in, space, in place because of the sonic boom. So you could only fly over water. You couldn't fly supersonically over land, only subsonically, which limited the plane in so many ways that... There's just no way it could have ever made money that way. Now, the companies that are doing the R&D work on, this, on, the, on, the, uh, on the new versions of the supersonic planes are saying they've come up with a system to somehow mitigate the sonic boom. Uh, I can't speak to that latest development. I'm not familiar with that. But uh, the, the, the Concorde and the original supersonic aircraft, um, you can see it at the Air and Space Museum. So I'll have to uh, point that out at our Udvar Hazy Center. We have an example of a Concorde. That's a beautiful thing. But one of the other really uh, limiting factors was it only carried 100 passengers. Right. Uh, so it was uh, a marvel of technology. It's a beautiful thing just to look at. Uh, but if you're a, a you know, green eye shade kind of person and looking at the economics of it, it, it just wasn't it there. Work. Not only that, if you take a look at the, the, the schematic drawings of it, what you discover very quickly is the Concorde was 14 separate fuel tanks. I mean, and the flight engineer's only job, among other things, but his biggest job was weight balance, was to, was to continually pump fuel from one tank to another to make sure the center of gravity didn't get out of control. Yeah, it's again, it's a, it was a technological marvel and a, and a, a, a beautiful thing, uh, but it just didn't have its practicality. One of the great marketing schemes came up with by Cunard and British Airways was that you would sail, you'd fly over one way and sail back the, the, the other across the North Atlantic. And every day on the North Atlantic crossing, Whoever was on deck uh, at, a, at a certain time, I think it was around 9.28 in the morning, the captain would come on the loudspeaker and announce to the passengers that in about two minutes they were going to hear a loud explosion. But that wasn't anything to do with the ship. That was the Concorde flying overhead. One of the other things about the Concorde was that for every flight you needed three airplanes because because you were paying such a great deal for the ticket and it was this great uh, experience. Uh, they didn't want to have any problems with flight delays or technical problems, so there was an airplane uh, in New York, and there was an airplane on the other end in Europe. Uh, standby. Yeah. Just standby. Yeah. You know, you mentioned your campus out near Dulles. I've been there. It's fascinating. I mean, I could I could spend all... We actually... I did a one-hour special when the Concorde crashed in, in July of 2000 and, and for NBC. And we did the special eight years later because of the court case involved. 
about what happened. Did it really hit that piece of metal? When did the tires disintegrate? And we came out and shot on your on your Concorde out there because it was a remarkably well-preserved aircraft that we could use to explain things. Oh, yes, it flew in. In fact, one of my sort of favorite little inside stories at the museum, the curator for our commercial air transport collection, a fellow called Bob Vanderlinden, was in France at the time doing some research for an exhibition, and uh, uh, he got to ride his artifact home to, to Washington. So that's a, a unique curatorial experience. You know, if there was ever a time not to use a five-letter word called later, uh, the Concorde was a good example of that, because I know so many of my friends said, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll take it later. I'll, I'll get one later. And then later evaporated because it, by 2003, uh, it, was, it was basically over. Well, I have a little saying that I try to live by, and that's plan for tomorrow, but live for today. Okay. So tell me what surprises being the curator. What surprises I'm going to find out there today? Well, of course, uh, we are doing a, a wonderful uh, renovation project of the National Air and Space Museum on the Mall. Uh, we opened in 1976. It was a bicentennial gift to the country. Uh, and uh, the building is uh, showing a little bit of wear. So we have to do a, a significant renovation of the building. But the opportunity that that's giving us is to redo all of the exhibitions. All 26 exhibition galleries are being renewed and redone. And uh, we'll be doing that uh, uh, through the next uh, six years or so. We started about a year ago. Uh, the museum will remain open to the public through the entire uh, seven-year project, which will be completed in 2025. And uh, we'll uh, be welcoming visitors and having programs through all of that, uh, even though some of the galleries will be closed from time to time. And this year, our big focus is the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 lunar landing. Uh, which, which is coming up in July. Exactly. If you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. My next guest, happy to have her back on the show again. Um, I'm a great fan of, well, essentially hidden gems. It's, we have a segment of that on my public television show every week called The Travel Detective where I go to different cities and show you what's not in the uh, in the guidebooks, what's not in the brochures that only the locals know about, but that's actually accessible to you if you just knew about it. So my next guest is perfectly up that alley because she's the author of No Access Washington, D.C., the capital's hidden treasures, haunts, and forgotten places. Beth Cantor, how are you? I'm well, thank you. Thank you, you for having me. You got it. Now, you're a New Yorker. Yes. But you've moved here when? I moved here in 1991, so right. I've lived here longer than I've lived anywhere else. Right, but, but to do this kind of book, you have to have a fresh set of eyes. So absolutely right. So look, there's the Washington Monument. Check it off the list. There are mm -hmm. all the memorials, right? Sure. But there are the hidden memorials too, right? There are the hidden memorials, but there are also the spaces below the memorials. So in uh, in my book, we actually go below to the Undercroft below the Lincoln Memorial. What's down there? Well, it's the where bar scene from Star Wars. No, uh, it's where we're going to hide out during the zombie apocalypse. First of all. <laughs> But don't tell anyone. Um, but can you get down there? We needed a permit and to go with the ranger, but it's extraordinary. But if you and ask, you can go. I don't know about that, actually. Okay. But they are doing some construction now that will include, my understanding is, the current plan to include a viewing window that will give the public an eye on some of what's down there. So it's it's quite magnificent. It's Beth, almost what's as, down there? It's almost as deep as the monument is high. The ranger explained it to me that it is the mountain that holds up the temple, and it does feel that way. It sort of feels like Hogwarts or um, the National... And kind of a deconstructed cathedral down there. So one part... Includes was all that, the columns. Was that intentional? Well, here's the thing. D.C. actually is built on swampland. 
So they needed to go down pretty deep to hold the monument up. Wow. So they, they went, I, th- I think it's about 40 feet below. It's, it's a dirt floor and massive columns holding it up. And one of the most interesting things in the first section is there's graffiti that the uh, stone carvers left when they were working down there. For about 10 years, they were down there. They're tic-tac-toe boards. They're figures that kind of look like the Monopoly man. They think it's the uh, job foreman. He, he kind of looks like a fat cat with a big belly and smoking a cigar. When, in one rendition of him, he has a little duck on his back for reasons that nobody <laughs> can explain. There's uh, one that they think is Gloria Swanson. There are a few off-color ones. There's a little dog wagging his tail. They're quite good. They're all done in charcoal, and they're perfectly preserved. There are about 50 images down there. And then when you go to the part below the plaza, it has the conditions of a cavern. So there's stalactites hanging down. So a lot of history down there. A lot. When we talk about museums in Washington, sure. I mean, obviously, you know, we, we talk about the Smithsonian, we talk about the National Portrait mm-hmm. Gallery. I mean, there's so many places that you know or know of. Absolutely. But there are some other ones that are not right on the top of your list. That's true. Like? Oh, it's a great question. Well, I think there are parts, first of all, there are parts of the Smithsonian that people don't um, explore. So most of the Smithsonian's have libraries. So for example, for this book, we were in the library of the Hirshhorn, which is Hirshhorn's book collection. And the librarian, and this you just have to ask, the rare book librarian will take out things like um, a Picasso book, which in and of itself is nice, right? But then you open it up and it is inscribed to Hirshhorn from Picasso with doodles. <laughs> and so if you if you want to go a little a little deeper into the places that we know and love, it's right there for you. Now, Helen Keller? Yes. Tell me about that. Right? Isn't that... I was... This story still um, captures my imagination. And there's still a lot of questions. It doesn't seem that there's a, a complete consensus on the why of this. But Helen Keller is interred at the National Cathedral, along with her companion, Annie Sullivan, and her teacher, in the crypt. Now, the crypt is not open to the public. It is only for families that have loved ones uh, that are, you know, that is their final resting place. However, there is a beautiful little chapel right across from it that most visitors don't quite hit. It's, it's underneath the main uh, sanctuary there. And there is a beautiful um, plaque done in Braille that talks about Helen Keller and her life. The thought is that at one point the the people at the cathedral wanted it to kind of be like Westminster Abbey where a lot of American heroes would make their final final home right. at the cathedral. So there there are a few people uh, who who are interred there. And then if you go out a little bit outside of town, mm-hmm. uh, you write about a place called Poolsville, Maryland. Yes. Tell me about that. Poolsville, Maryland. Well, and by the way, these are all accessible day trips. Oh, right? Poolsville is an easy, easy yeah. drive. You might want to avoid it during rush hour. But other than that, it's a nice, easy drive. Poolsville in the summer is worth a drive because there are acres and acres of sunflower fields there open to the public. They are planted by Montgomery County actually to attract birds for hunting season. It's not uh. It's not the prettiest reason uh. why, but it is gorgeous. <laughs> And um, you can just wade through sunflowers. That's something else. There is also... Photo up. Totally. There are tons of shutterbugs that come there and lots of people with easels set up to do paintings. There is also a 
Buddhist monastery there that has a parrot preserve on it, and that is open to the public. There is a man there. He really is the parrot whisperer. (laughs) He has about 50 parrots, I think, right now that he takes in. Parrots do not do well, he told me, that uh, when they're domesticated. So they're cat ladies and parrot guys. Exactly. Although the parrots apparently develop this condition often when they're uh, taken away from their families early on. Or or when they're surrounded by 50 other parrots they don't want to be with. Well, they do better with the other birds. (laughs) They don't learn learn self-care, so they... They preen too too much and too hard, and they can bleed and develop all sorts of diseases, and sometimes they die, and it's a habit that they can't undo. So uh, he he makes little kind of vests and shirts for them so they don't pluck out. They, a lot of them are traumatized, but um, I got it. It's quite a place. It's very loud. <laughs> I, I bet it's very and loud. The and there's a site. There is a huge sign when you walk in that says "We bite." And they do. And they do. And they do. Mm-hmm. But still worth a visit. Riding along in my automobile. My baby beside me at the wheel. Cruising and playing the radio. With no particular place to go. Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. My next guests, uh, Nikki and David Nellis, have been regulars on the show every time we come to Washington. They're the co-hosts of Foodie and the Beast, their own radio show. Welcome back. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Uh, I was just telling you guys off mic that... Last time I was here, I went to the wharf. Now, the wharf, what, six or seven years ago, you wouldn't have gone. Well, it was a totally, completely different area. And, uh, I mean, there was the seafood department there where people That was went. still there, yeah. Right, you could go get fish, but that has been cleaned up, and it's beautiful now. But there's been a terrific investment in the wharf. You know, it's going to be, at the when it's all said and done, it'll be over a mile of uh, a gorgeous walkway, very similar to the High Line in New York. Yeah. You know, beautifully landscaped, lots of places to walk. Gorgeous buildings, gorgeous restaurants, a little bit of retail. Um, but it's a, it's a spectacular place to go see in D.C. And what I've noticed, and not just there, but all over D.C., and, and by the way, not just confined to, to D.C., we used to talk about artisanal breweries. Everybody had, an, you know, there's so many microbreweries. Now it's distilleries. Yeah. Oh, well, so if you go over to Ivy City, the Ivy City area, which, again, you know, 10 years ago, I wasn't sending you over there either. Uh, But (laughs) Ivy City is like Distillery Road. There is a whole bunch of distillers over there doing all sorts of spirits. And And by the way, it's not not just single malts now. It's gin. Oh, gin, bourbon, um, rum. All of it is being distilled here. Even on the wharf, Todd Thrasher has a distillery. Exactly. Todd Thrasher has his TNT. He's distilling uh, rum right there on the wharf in a fabulous uh, restaurant. And bar. And how is the rum? I mean, the rum's pretty good. It's Todd. We'll never tell. Todd is really well known. Uh, You know, he's been a mixologist in D.C. for a really long time. So he's in his element right there. Yeah, this is his. This is his. This is his jam. This is what he does. All right. So the wharf is. It was new to me, but it's 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 about two to three years old when you think about it. No, it's a little. It's a little over a year old. But but in terms of its development. Well, it opened a year ago, October. Right. But I but I went there for the fish before. Mm -hmm. So I mean, I knew it was a wharf, but But they didn't call it old timey. Okay. Yeah. But what's new right now? So there's a lot. 
lot new right now. I mean, one of the most interesting things about D.C. is, is again, five or six years ago, if you came to D.C., there was like one or two rooftops to go to. And now... Everybody wants a rooftop now. Now... They're all over the place. Everybody has a rooftop. So the Wharf is a great example. So Nick Stefanelli um, opened up Opacina. He has a glorious rooftop on top of his restaurant. It's going to be a very hot place to hang out. Uh... Todd's Place, Tiki TNT, the rum distillery. He, too, has a beautiful um, rooftop dining. He has downstairs dining as well. And then there's Whiskey Charlie, which is another place down at the wharf. Again, gorgeous views, great things to see. But um, there are other places in the city, too. And years ago, you there were t- two places, you know, the top of the W. And Perry's. Yeah, and Perry's were, like, the only rooftops. Um, so the new Moxie Hotel has a really beautiful rooftop dining and estuary, which is in the new Conrad Hotel, which is a super posh Hilton I, property. I went, I went there. It's uh, pretty. Right there, uh, next to the convention center. I yeah. Mean, oh yeah. No, in city center. I went there. Uh, the two brothers are the chefs, right? Yeah, Mike yeah. and uh, Michael and Brian Voltaggio. Yeah, I had a I had a great meal there. Yeah. It's really good. Yeah. And, and what's amazing about that hotel, mm-hmm. when you think about the neighborhood where it's in, because you've got the big Marriott across the street. You've got a lot of big box hotels there. The Renaissance is there. Um, this is a big hotel to fill when you consider the fact the rooms are not inexpensive. No. And But the rooms are big, and the light in that hotel, they, they specialize in the light. Well, so my understanding about the hotel is, first, it's in the city center. Right. And for those of you who haven't been to D.C.'s city center, that's about three or four years old at this point. And that's like very high-end retail. So Hermes and Louis Vuitton and Dior. Great so, dining, too. Centralina's there. Yes, also excellent dining. And Momofuku is there as well. My secret is? Yes, tell I us. I don't just eat at Centralina. I go shopping there. I know. It's great, isn't yeah, it? They had a great little market. She's Amy Brandwine. Um, is this is her third year of being nominated as for a James Beard Award? So our fingers are crossed that she gets it yeah. this year. All right, so you got some of those hotels opening. What's your favorite new place? Well, right now my favorite new place, um, Estuary is fabulous. Yeah. There's no reason not to check it out. Um, Rooster and Owl is the big name right now out there. Uh, Tom Seatsma just gave it three stars. It's a uh, tiny little boutique restaurant. Um, Rooster, because uh, one of the partners gets up early. Owl, because the other one stays up late. And it is. You know a- what I thought she said? I thought she said Rooster and Owl. Oh, no, <laughs> Owl. Sorry. My New York accent. That's okay. Uh, or Jersey Rooster accent. Rooster and Owl. Yes, an Owl. Yeah, uh, but yes, yeah, so uh, it's a multi-course dining uh, situation. Uh, the food is really fresh and uh, unique, and uh, it's very hard to get a reservation. So if you're coming to D.C., my advice is to get online now and book that reservation. But also, there are several other restaurants that are really cool that are opening around D.C. Down by Union Market, which is another area that's super hot, is the Coconut Club. And this is Chef Adam Greenberg. It's a super, No relation. No, no. relation. Th- right, no relation at all. But it's a super fun, Instagrammable place. Uh, like, everything is for the gram at that restaurant, including the food, which is uh, kind of Hawaiian-ish and Lots of fun, great cocktails. The thing that's happening to me that I see happening, that I see it all the time, I've seen it in Lisbon, I've seen it in Warsaw, I've seen it in London now. We're starting a little bit to see it here, and that is the food halls. 
you know, where we're like in, in, in Lisbon, it's run by Time Out, and they're like 50 different vendors, mm-hmm. but but really great chefs, right? And some some retail as well in one old hall that used to be like an open air market that they enclosed. Well, they, so like you the have Reading market. Well, huh? so you have yeah. Union Market yeah. here, but Eden's, who owns Union Market, is also launching a Latin market right around the corner from Union Market, and it's going to be the same concept. It's going to be a multi stalled concept, totally dedicated to. Latin products, Latin food. They're bringing in chefs from all over the world. Um, it's going to be really fabulous. So what's the one trend that you're noticing that's not doing well? Not doing well. Well, Me it's Me getting not... my own way? Yeah, okay, that's <laughs> well, not that's happening. Story, yeah. Well, it's not really... I think this is happening probably across the country. It's not just D.C.-based. One of the trends is, is that real estate is getting higher and higher and higher, and it's making it harder and harder for restaurants and small retail to survive. Um, these are razor thin margins. It's really hard for these restaurants to uh, But as to hard do as well. it is, as hard as everybody's opening up one every 15 but minutes. Ken, I, know. I think what's happening though is that that's making the smaller entrepreneurs go farther out into neighborhoods that mm-hmm. aren't necessarily traditional and it's changing those neighborhoods. In what way? Oh, in a positive uh, I mean, way. In a positive way. I mean, there are neighborhoods around, I mean, Bloomingdale's a perfect example. 15 years ago, People didn't even know where Bloomingdale was. That's just up Rhode Island Avenue, a couple of blocks. Now there are great restaurants there, like Red Hen, mm-hmm. um, and um, I mean they're destination restaurants. So, and it's changed the neighborhood. Now the neighborhoods are changing, renovations, all of that. You just hit on a, a, a key word for me. Actually, two key words: destination restaurants. If you tell me a city, I'll tell you the restaurant why I go to that city for that restaurant, and I only go to that city for that restaurant, huh. right? I'm ready. Poughkeepsie. <laughs> no. oh, that's easy. Oh, really? Sure. Oh, Chuck E. Cheese. Okay. Uh, no, but for me, you know, there's a restaurant in Lisbon that I always go to. Mm-hmm. Actually, there are two now. Uh, there's a restaurant in Paris I will always go to, and it's not, it's not the usual suspects. There's a restaurant in Rome. There's a restaurant, and we're just going through Europe here, a restaurant in Venice. But not only that, I go there for their signature dish that I call their signature dish. Interesting. So I'll always, eat, I'll always go there for the same dish every year. Well, hmm. the thing about D.C., for, for particularly for people who call themselves, you know, cast themselves as foodies. And I'm a native Washingtonian. It used to be there wasn't even one of, of everything. In New York, there's 20 of everything, and you get to pick the best. Right. Now, that's been completely wiped out. The choices are unbelievable, and there are many, you know, in the, in the same categories, every kind of cuisine you can name. And it's really, it's become... As much of a destination, uh, you know, dining city as any other. And, you know, I'll add to that, uh, probably one of the biggest trends is the fast casual dining trend. And D.C. is the innovator of several national chains like Sweetgreen, like Cava. Those all originated, and pizza. They all originated here. Um, and this fast casual dining, Chico is another great yeah, example. If you're coming to town, find Chico. Absolutely. Should there be a rapid change in cabin pressure, oxygen masks will automatically drop from the compartment above your seat, free of charge. And to start the flow of oxygen, pay your flight attendant $75.63. Uh, the last time this guest was on the show, uh, he was being very secretive about his next movements, but I think we can announce that tomorrow they're opening up again. And uh, one of my favorite places to visit when I'm in Washington, and it's actually going to get bigger 
in terms of space and exhibits. We're talking about the International Spy Museum, and he's the historian and curator there. Vince Houghton, how are you? Good. Nice to be back with you. Yeah. You know, i just like to say there was no collusion. And Oh, I'm sorry. Sorry. Are you going to have a collusion exhibit? So one of the cool things about the new museum, and I'm glad you asked that, is unlike the old museum, we have almost 7,500 square feet of temporary exhibit space. So we'll be constantly able to update the museum with the latest and greatest of what's going on in the world. And I think the answer is, at some point, yes. You know, when we know the final answer to these stories, we'll have to tell them. Well, we know a lot of it already in terms of what the Russians were trying to do. Absolutely. And there's an exhibit right there. Yeah, and we, we have it as part of a broader cyber exhibit that we have at the new museum because of a lot of the hacking that took place for the DNC. That's stuff we know about for sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, we just finished a, a piece that's actually airing right now on public television uh, as part of my series called The Royal Tour. We did The Royal Tour of Poland with the Prime Minister. And he told the story of Jack Strong. You know who that is. Mm -hmm. And most people in this country don't. But Jack Strong was... Um, Basically, working for the Russians as, 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 a, as a Polish you know, intelligence officer who didn't like the occupation of Poland by the, by the Soviets and used a sailboat to, little, to literally for 17 years smuggle out the nuclear secrets of the Russians. Yeah, I mean, and, and those stories are so infrequently told. And I think that's one of the great things about the museum is that, sure, you're going to find a lot of the stories that you know about. But we made an effort, particularly with the new museum opening, to really focus... By the way, where is it? Oh, sorry. It's in L'Enfant Plaza. So I know L'Enfant Plaza. And yeah. if you kind of know DC, if you know where the Smithsonian Castle is... You know why, block how I know L'Enfant Plaza, you're going to laugh. It's where I go for accident hearings for the National Transportation Safety Board. Yeah, we're right next to the... NT we're right above the NTSB. We're right See, next I to... See, I knew that. Okay, there the you go. The post office right down from the Department of Energy building, the Forestall building. And what's really cool about it, if, if Washington Washington, D.C. has transformed itself in the last couple of years. They put, I think, $2 billion into the Southwest waterfront, and we're right next to that, um, right in the middle of everything. And we're really happy with our new building because it provides us the opportunity to do things we just couldn't do before. Now, you know, when we talk about museums, we're talking about history. So obviously, World War II plays a big role. The Cold War especially plays a big role. But today, it's less about gadgets than it is about cyber. So how do you, I mean, how do you exhibit cyber? Sure, and I, I think that... I mean, you can't we, just show me a Mac. We obviously can't ignore cyber, but I think that there's a, a misunderstanding about cyber as being as transformative as it is. It's a transformative technology, but most of the time you're still doing things the old-fashioned way. You're still tapping phones. Right, you're still tapping phones. You're still using the intelligence you collect in very unique ways, right? So if take Watergate. See, I, I go back to microfilm drops. Well, you sure. Know, guys, but, guys on street corners late at night smoking cigarettes and like handing off envelopes. But know. Watergate in 1972 was a break into the DNC headquarters and they stole actual physical documents. Well, in 2016, the Russians hacked the DNC and stole documents in the kind of the internet. That's the difference. It's the methodology. But how they were used is still somewhat traditional intelligence. It's covert action. It's disinformation. It's all the things that go back thousands of years. That's great. And has anything changed, though? I mean, we, we can talk technology on one right. hand, but then there's technique. Yeah, and I think that the tradecraft has stayed pretty consistent. I mean, it's the same basic concepts that existed back when the first cavemen were doing human intelligence, when they were spying on their neighbors to find out where the best berries were. It's still what we're doing today. We just have to do it in a much different way because of technology and because our adversaries are very good at stopping us from doing it and vice versa. So counterintelligence has become a professional. Of course. You know, which it never really was before perhaps the mid-19th century. And now you have so many independent states that have 
powerful intelligence agencies, right? During the Cold War, you had this East-West bloc, everyone kind of working together. Now there are dozens and dozens of countries that have an intelligence agency with very high budget. So it's a bit of more of a free-for-all today than ever has been before. We're also, and when we come back, I want to talk about this, we are living in such a wired society to begin with. Cameras are everywhere. There's no such thing as, as, as an airlock alibi uh, because you can't say you were not in New Jersey when they, when they have photographs of you going through the toll booth. Um, and the, the one that came to mind to me, and the most recent example, was the, the murder of Khashoggi in, mm-hmm. in Istanbul. Because Erdogan, the president of, of Turkey, his intelligence was so sophisticated around that embassy. The, the Saudis were saying, oh, nothing happened. We don't know where he is, blah, blah, blah. Within 30 seconds, Erdogan releases all the footage of this guy getting out of the car, walking right. in. The, the guard coming out trying to make believe he was him and, and look alike clothing, pictures of the hit team that came in at the airport, pictures of their plane, pictures of them going through security, pictures of them carrying suitcases out. I mean, is there anywhere today, I'm sure there is, probably the Antarctic, but is there anywhere today that I can go from point A to point B and not have somebody see me? Well, not in any kind of developed city. I mean, most of the most cities now are, are so freaked out about potential terrorist attacks that they've heightened up security to a much higher level than you would have found in the 70s or the 80s. What I think is interesting is even if there isn't a state-sponsored surveillance system like you're talking about, right. look at the Boston Marathon investigation. They went to the security cameras. That's Not it. just the security cameras. They went to people's cell phones. They yeah. went to people who were taking pictures of the ending and actually crowdsourced. We call this open source intelligence. They right. crowdsourced the intelligence to catch the Zionist brothers. That you don't even need in a sophisticated 21st century state-sponsored security system because everyone walks around with a security system in their pocket. So basically, we're de facto employees of the state. Well, sure, but at the same time, <laughs> at the same time, you can find social media and other things being used to rise up against the state. Whether it's the Arab Spring or the Green right. Revolutions, and, and you know what happens in Ukraine. You know, so it, it's as technology changes, it changes for both sides. It becomes much easier to surveil, but also much easier to rise up against a government if they're infringing on your rights. For example, have you ever taken a cruise? Yeah, sure. Okay. Uh, recently? Then the last couple of years, sure. Okay. The ship that you were on, 1,100 cameras. Oh, sure. 1,100 cameras. 24-7, digital, never turn them off, and they see everything. Well, no, they're, I, not, they're not in the cabins. And I'm sure that they, I know they of. tell you about that, right? In the fine print that you sign, Actually, you never know. No, yeah. they don't tell you that that specifically. They just have the, we have the right to whatever. Yeah. But they never say, oh, by the way, there are 1,100 yeah. cameras on the, no, they don't exactly do that. No, but uh, in a way, it stopped a lot of theft because all of a sudden, if I left my, my iPhone at the pool and I come back an hour later and it's gone, they just rewind the tape and they see exactly at what time who took it and who it was. I mean, and there's nowhere to run if you're on the ship. Right. I mean, it's over. Well, there's always a story about some honeymoon where a wife ends up missing and gets pushed off the ship by the husband. And Yes, and yeah. interestingly enough, you know what they put on the ships now? Forward and aft-facing infrared cameras hanging off the side of the ship. So they can give you a time-coded trail as to not only when they did, but if they did it alone or they were pushed. <laughs> and it's very interesting. There was, a, there was a story a couple of years ago about a guy and his wife who were not having a, They were fighting in public. And then they walked back to their cabin around 1 o'clock in the morning, and the cameras showed them entering the cabin together. And about an hour later, the husband comes out alone. This is like 2 in the morning, and just walks out to another deck, right? And doesn't come back for a while. And then the next morning, they can't find the wife. And, of course, he could have been like suspect number uno. And, but guess what? They went to the video. They went back to the, to the, to the camera footage, and what they saw was that she waited until he left the cabin, walked out on the balcony, and just jumped. Hmm. You know. Well, one thing that we really want to touch upon with the new spy museum and things we haven't done in the past is looking at the gray area 
of intelligence, the moral, legal, ethical issues that are so prevalent. And it comes down to things like surveillance, like the public's right to know about information that the government is being held secret, about the ideas behind how far can the government go to protect us. For example, the traffic light cameras. Sure. Right? In many cities, up until about maybe three years ago, if you ran a red light, they photographed you immediately on your, right? And guess what? Time after time, those cases got thrown out of court, and now cities are taking them out. Mm -hmm. Well, because they keep losing the cases. I mean, that that comes down to... It became a cost-benefit analysis more than anything else, is right. that people were fighting them. And I'm certainly one. D.C. had them all over the place, you know, and I fought every one of them because who knows if it's my car or somebody else's and car. And did Vince else. win? I was a, I had about a 60% success <laughs> rate, so it was enough to me to keep on fighting. Um, I may have a lead foot that I probably shouldn't have around here, but... But really, that's, you know, another key issue that we're talking about is how technology changes things. Well, I'll give you an example. When I was about nine years old, my dad was a doctor, and his patient, one of his patients gave him for a, a present. My dad came home. It was a Minox, right? And I, I looked at this camera. It was the size of a pencil, yep. just about, like three pencils together. And, and I was hearing from my dad that my, it was a spy camera. And so, so I thought, this is really cool. So I, I, I didn't tell him one day, and I took it to school, Right. And I was doing secret pictures of my teachers and secret pictures of my class. I thought it was like so cool and had this little black cassette of, of, of black and white mm-hmm. film that had to be developed and put in them. And that was 1950s technology. I mean, at least. I mean, the Minox camera was actually developed in Latvia going back into the 1930s. And it was used in World War II as right. a spy camera. And, and it wasn't developed as a spy camera. It was developed as like a tourist camera, but it became so ubiquitous with espionage that... Yes, got a lot of tourists who were... Posing as spies, I guess. Yeah. Or a lot of tourists that were just tourists were wrapped up as being spies because no one in their right mind carried a Minox camera in Eastern Europe in the 50s and 60s. Hello and welcome to Alaska Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants. Please look at one now. But I would walk 500. Every time I come to Washington, I'm always amazed and over. I'm, I'm, I guess I'm basically overloaded with opportunities. Um, it's probably, and, and my next guest could probably put this in perspective, the most concentrated collection of museums, memorials, open-air institutions, I mean, everything that you can possibly see in one city. And it's, and it's really a district. Yeah, it's everywhere. By the way, that voice is Kim Sayed, who is the director of the National Portrait Gallery. You know, I, I go to the Portrait Gallery in London, and it's, that to me is, is amazing, right? But the Portrait Gallery here, I don't know if you get your fair shake, because when I ask people where they go, they, oh, they go to the Smithsonian, or they'll, but, the, but you guys have fascinating stuff in there. Yeah, well, we're a part of the Smithsonian, so yes. that makes us happy, of course, but we're yes. one of the many, many children. There are 19 museums, nine research centres, 19 libraries, and a national zoo. So we're just <laughs> one of the many, but, um, you know, we're and by actually... The way, and by the way, that accent, born in Nigeria raised in Australia and a citizen of the Netherlands. So basically, you're in the Witness Relocation Program. Well, someone yeah. asked me if I was from New Jersey. No. So, yes. Oh, stop. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, haven't, they haven't been to New Jersey lately. Then. No, no. Yeah. I'm not sure how to, how to interpret that, but I'll take it. Okay, good. Yeah. As you were saying. So, I mean, there's a lot to do in Washington, as you said, but um, the difference between the National Portrait Gallery of America and the one in England that we were based on, although it took us a while, while we actually celebrated 50 years last year. We were opened to the public in 1968, is, of course, 
course that, you know, in terms of American achievement, it was something that you did, you know, by true grit. It's not that you were particularly handsome or beautiful or lucky or rich. It's because you really changed America in some way. And, of course, in England, they had all those princes and princesses and, you know, a lot of that was royalty and inherited nobility. Of course, as time goes on, it changes. But But here the definition is if you're going to have a portrait, it's a portrait with portfolio. Well, it's, you know, a man or woman who've made a national contribution. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. and I use the word contribution advisedly because there's no hall of heroes. You know, we have John Wilkes Booth who shot Lincoln, for example, Al Capone. Well, he so, made a, some would say he made a contribution in a sort of warped way. Yeah, yeah. He made a contribution to history, whether you like it or not. Well, he changed history, yeah. absolutely. Very, very real way, yeah. And who did that portrait? Um, you know, I don't know the answer to that. It's a difficult... <laughs> I knew you were going to catch me out in some way, yeah. Because it's interesting. I mean, he had to sit for it. He was an actor, of course, John Wilkes yeah. Booth. And so I, I believe that the picture is actually one of his playbills. Ah, so it happened before he actually... Yeah, ah, yeah exactly, yeah. yeah. Other than John Wilkes Booth... There are a number of surprises in the museum of people who's, whose portraits hang there. Well, the people who automatically get in are the presidents and the of first course. ladies. And so then a delivery... And when do they get in? Right? Somebody paints their portrait while they're in office? We work with the White House in the final year of office. And so they go, they go up after they've left office. So if you go in now, you'll see Barack Obama's portrait, but we'll be working on President Trump towards the end of his term. And has there ever been a president who said not interested? We've had a president who hated his portrait. Does who, that count the same yes. thing? Yes, and who was that? Yeah, big argument between um, President Johnson and his artist, um, uh, you know, Lyndon Baines Johnson and his artist Peter Hurd. So what happened was Peter Hurd had done a pretty handsome portrait for the cover of Time magazine, and I think the president thought it was okay, good bet, you know, go to the next one, and um, for some reason hated it. I don't know why. It's actually quite handsome. He's standing sort of with the capital behind him, and there's sort of the dreamy um, sunset you know background I, I have a guess my guess is you said it was painted during the last part of their term right well the last part of Johnson's term was pretty depressing well, he doesn't look depressed. He looks pretty um, Yeah, but regal. he was pretty depressed. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, he, you know, it was on. It was a very public fight. The, pres- the artist thought the president was the rudest man he'd ever met. Well, there <laughs> and, you go. And the president thought that the artist was just awful. And it, and you know it what? Was... Rule of thumb, try not to piss off the portrait artist. Well, you know, there's a really funny cartoon of this where um, by the cartoonist Block... And you see this kind of timid-looking artist, and he's got his palette, and he's got his beret on, and he's sort of shaking in the corner, and this giant canvas. And on the canvas is the president, and he's floating on clouds, and he's holding a thunderbolt, and he's got cherubim, you know, angels playing around. And then you see the president in the other corner looking up at it and saying, you know, it's great, but I'd love some more glitter. <laughs> he wasn't a shy and retiring man, was he? No, he never Johnson? was. No, no, yeah. no. no. He, no. He, he was uh, rather assertive. He was, yeah. Yeah. So only one president hated their portrait? Um, I suspect a few more did, actually. They don't always... You know, in our case, we didn't start commissioning until the first President Bush, and we always show them the picture before it gets, you know, accessioned into the national collection. So the ones that we've done, we have had their approval. But, you know, previous times... And I should say that we collect them in depth, so we have 1,600 portraits of presidents. So, you know, something like 127 Washingtons. There's never been a portrait of Washington that we didn't like. Really? Well, that's what it feels like to me. <laughs> Every time the curators come up with another one, I'm like, sure, add it to the list. But please tell me you do not have a portrait of Washington playing poker with dogs. No, we do not have that. No. Okay, just double check. Just, me. yeah. Because that would give you the reason to say you hate it. Well, they I mean. haven't brought it forward. Let's just put it that 
You mean it could be in storage? Well, yeah, no, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> not, not that I know of. But there's always curious ones. And it's often, it's not just, you know, photographs. By the way, we weren't allowed to collect photographs until 1976. Why? Um, there was just A this purist moment, element? A little bit, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, a real portrait had to be painted or it had to be sculpted. Although we were collecting, um, you know, playbills and cartoons and all sorts of other ephemera as well. So, And incidentally, we couldn't collect anybody who was alive. You had to be dead. You had to be very, very dead, 10 years dead before we would collect your portrait. But that ended in 2001. Gotcha. Yeah, it's very complicated. Now, you have about 2 million visitors a year. 2.3. Who's counting? Well, okay. me, actually. I, I, this, I, I, yeah. <laughs> often <laughs> and gleefully. What's your, what's your exhibit right now? We have a number. Uh, we're constantly uh, turning around exhibitions. So as well as the permanent collection, which, as you pointed out earlier, you know, come in any time, we're free. And incidentally, we're open till 7 o'clock at night. So where many of the other museums close, you can come and see us. And we have a wonderful um, cafe and you can have a glass of wine and all the rest of it. But the exhibit that you just opened is what, mid-sentence? In mid-sentence, and it's about, um, if you think about it, often you'll see pictures of people talking, but you actually don't hear the sound. But you kind of imagine it in your mind's eye. And so, for example, we have a portrait of Martin Luther King Jr. giving the, you know, I Have a Dream speech is a good example. But also just opened is an exhibition on the passing of the 19th Amendment when women got the vote in 1920, although most of the work had been done by 1919. And in our story, it starts actually with abolition. Um, So really in the 1830s when people are trying to argue not only is it a good idea to um, no longer have enslaved people but uh, women themselves were saying well you know we're kind of enslaved in our homes in some fashion and so they kind of march side by side in terms of um, civil rights activities so that's gone up Um, it'll be up until January the 5th of 2020 the The charge for looking at this pamphlet is three (laughs) dollars The charge for looking at this pamphlet and putting it back quickly is $4. Most importantly, a little bit of history about this hotel. I've been coming here since like 1970 when I was a lowly intern at Newsweek magazine, but what a great time to be in Washington. And this place was a hub of activity then. It's a hub of activity now. Big hotel. You could never walk in the, in the lobby without seeing at least 40 people, whether you liked it or not. Uh, the general manager of this hotel is joining me now. And no, he was not the former coach of the San Francisco 49ers, but shares the same name. Bill Walsh, how are you? I'm doing well, Peter. Thank you. And I'm, I'm sure you, you heard that for how many years about, about Bill Walsh? Many, many years. Yes. Many years. How many rooms in this hotel? We have currently have 1,152 keys. But before, when I first came here, I mean, it was, it was actually bigger than that. It was. It was a 1,300-room hotel. Several years ago, the decision was made to take our original Wardman Tower and convert some of those floors into guest rooms. So the inventory dropped from 1,300 to 1,152. Now, we know it as the Marriott Wardman, but it was the Wardman. Yes. In 1918, when Harry Wardman had his home here, he built the Wardman Tower Hotel right next to his home, which is where the Wardman Tower stands today. And it stayed the Wardman until when? Wow, it stayed Wardman probably until the early 60s and uh, came in with the Sheridan Corporation. Uh, And Sheridan had the management contract through the late 90s. Marriott came in in 98, I believe. So uh, you've been here 20 years. uh, Marriott's been here 20 years, yeah. Yeah, unbelievable. And every president's been here. I mean, the history here is amazing. There is a lot of history here. Um, 11 
of the 12 presidents from Herbert Hoover to George Bush had their inaugural, inaugural balls here at the hotel. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Who was the one who didn't? Well, they actually stopped having them for a while. Ah, that they, did it. Yeah, that did it. That kind of put an end to it. So much for your catering department. <laughs> exactly. But, I mean, they did come here because you had the space to accommodate them. We do. Um, you know, right now, we have 200,000 square feet of meeting space in the building. It's actually the largest amount of meeting space of any of the hotels in the district. Really? Yes. And yet, when they, you know, I, I think of the Washington Hilton as being big. Yes. Right? That's where they always have the White House Correspondents Dinner. They have a lot of events there. Yeah. Yes. But this is the big one. Yes. What distinguishes this hotel now? Look, you've got, you're 101 years old. Correct. The, the legacy continues. Yeah. So what's distinguishing about it now? Well, there's a couple of things. Number one, our, our, our past. And we have a great past. But when you look at it, the thing that really stands out for people who come to Washington and want to be here at Orman Park is we, and I call the term smash mouth, we are not smash mouth in the city. We are literally as a, an oasis. I'm sure when you came into the hotel today, you saw the beautiful tulips that surround the entrance and the yeah. gardens. We live in a historic, beautiful neighborhood of Woodley Park. You can walk the magnificent areas. And for those people who want a little bit more excitement, we're a short walk into the vibrant neighborhood of Adams Morgan. Right. And you can get on the metro at the bottom of the hill outside our front door and be downtown in five minutes. So there's a lot of things that draw people here. They like the ambiance of it. We have a great balance of modern, versus uh, historical look about the hotel and feel about the hotel. And very candidly, we're very fortunate to have a great staff that welcomes customers year after year from conventions, and it's great to see that interaction with so many repeat customers. Well, when you talk about the staff and the history of the hotel, the age of the hotel, when you're 101 years old, I, I was at the Pierre Hotel in New York uh, the other night for a, for a banquet, and a waiter came up to me, and he recognized me from, from television, and he said, guess how long I've worked here? And I said, how long? He says, 49 years. You've worked here 49 years. So how old are you? She's 83, you know? And they don't turn them over. I mean, and, and, and of course, along with that comes institutional knowledge. I mean, he knows where Absolutely. everything is. Absolutely. And we can beat the 49 years. Tell me. Yeah, uh, We have a gentleman here from the banquet department as well. He left the day after he graduated high school here in Washington. He started working here. He has been here for 51 years, and he is thinking about retiring. After Just thinking about it. Thinking about it. We have another gentleman in our housekeeping department who's been here 50 years. So it is a great tradition of well, people. Well, by the way, that banquet waiter at the Pierre Hotel, I think he has three summer homes in San Tropez. <laughs> probably does. I mean, because those are union jobs, man. And <laughs> I'm, and they hand them down to, the, to their kids, and they don't give them up. Exactly. We did a story a, a couple of years ago, and we went to the doorman at the Four Seasons Hotel in Chicago. And I said, I want you to play along with me. And he, and he was really nice about it. I said, I want to stay with you for your eight-hour shift. He said, why? I said, because when it's over, I'm, I want to take you somewhere. Mm -hmm. He said, okay. So we were with him. I mean, we weren't like on him, but we were there watching him. Right? Yeah. Eight hours later, I said, okay, come on. We had a little room set up. I said, okay, empty your pockets. <laughs> <laughs> you know what came out? $300. I, I, wouldn't, put, I wouldn't doubt that. I no, that's $300 that. in cash per day. Per day. I mean, this guy was styling. That's great. I know. That's, it's a great business to be in. I know. But, I mean, are you handing down that knowledge to other people here? What, what's your average turnover here? Oh, the average tenure of the hotel is all about 19 years. That's great. In 19 years. Yeah, the, the, the departments that really have the shortest tenure are really in the front office. So hire young kids who kind of come in and want to move on their careers or are here while they're at school and everything else. But when you look at the, the base departments, you know, housekeeping, food and beverage, um, the catering, those people have great years of, of service. 30 years and more is not an odd number to find in the, in the 
those departments. And when I talk to a lot of hotel general managers, I, mm-hmm. and, I, and I'm not going to say this was you unless it was, but <laughs> when I talked to a lot of I said, well, where'd you start? And they always give me the same two-word answer. You ready? Night auditor. You, they, were, they were like doing the books at night. I was a graduate student at St. John's Tell University. Tell me that was you too. I was a night auditor, a <laughs> part-time night auditor at Marriott's Essex House when I was a graduate student at St. John's University. Really? Yes, I was. And explain what that job is. Well, now it's all modernized. I know, but when you did it. When I did it, really, is the preparation of all the sales activities that occur in the hotel, from the restaurants to the bars to the rooms. It was taking the codes that people stay on so we know where our business was coming from. We call them market codes. And it was manually taking every single piece of business and identifying it, ensuring the proper rates are being charged and so forth, and making sure that all the charges from the bar and from the restaurant and everything. Got put on in time for people checking out the next morning. Correct. Correct. It right? had to be done by 6 in the morning at the latest. So basically, what were you working, what, 12 to 8? Uh, I was 11 to 7. 11 to 7. 11 to 7. Wow. Yeah. Great memories. Fantastic <laughs> memories. And by the way, the night auditors see everything. Uh, and the, a good night auditor says nothing. <laughs> you see it, but you don't say it. <laughs> I got gotcha. you. For people who've never been to this hotel before, what would be the biggest surprise to them coming in? Um... Biggest surprise. I think when people come here, and we do this with groups and site inspections, and people come here and you say, well, you're from Washington or the suburbs, and you've been here before, and they're like, we've never been here. That is a surprise to us. But when they come in, I think when they hear a 100-year-old building, and then they come in and they look around, they say, you don't look that you're 100 years old. You've got a lot of great fixtures. You've got a lot of space. You've got a lot of things. Your guest rooms are large in size. Um, I think which by the way was not typical of a 100 year old hotel not back then oh no absolutely not absolutely not I mean the biggest problems that a lot of hotels have today that are like the the landmark hotels in New York is that their architectural footprint they can't mess with it because the bathrooms are so small you can't mess with the plumbing exactly so even if they wanted to knock out some walls they couldn't they couldn't do it couldn't do it right yeah so why were your rooms always so large what what was the because that was unheard of back then. I think that was really the style that Harry Wardman wanted to put together. He's a big socialite. Um, we had uh, a historical individual. Um, she was here for years. She was dubbed the hostess with the mostess, uh, world-renowned. But uh, here in Washington, she was a big socialite, Pearl Mesta. Oh, I remember Pearl Mesta. And she, would, she took you know, social dinners and brought them to a new level where they were political uh, hubbub to use the word that you had before and she lived in the wardman tower and she liked to entertain so they built the wardman tower originally with very large rooms in mind for entertaining and now not all the rooms are the same size but they're generally a little larger you can find in most hotels and you know the other question i've got to ask you because you know marriott's just redone their their frequent stay program yes not without some turbulence uh there's been a little challenge yep has it settled out yet you know, a lot of it has. Um, you know, I think when you, you, you have a, a great travel program, like we do, well well over 100 million members, there's always going to be, you know, some bumps in the road. But, you know, the customers that I have spoken to, um, they've been very gracious. They understand it. But for the most part, I think a lot of the issues have been worked out. And people seem to be enjoying the Because anytime you integrate the programs, whether it's an airline mileage program <clears> or a hotel <throat> frequent state program, you got a problem. Okay. And by the way, you say 100 million members? It's more than that. I mean, a minimum. It, it right? is. Yeah. But the other interesting statistic is that Marriott right now is opening up one new hotel every 14 hours. Mind-boggling. It is. They just celebrated their 7,000th hotel. Yeah. 
Wow. Quite a legacy. Minnesota, Buffalo, Toronto, Winslow, Sarasota, Wichita, Tulsa, Ottawa, Oklahoma, Tampa, Panama, Madawa, La Paloma, Bangor, Baltimore, Salvador, Amarillo. On second thoughts, let's not go to Camelot. It is a silly place. I've been everywhere, man. Across the desert, it's bare, man. I breathe the mountain air, man. Travel I've had my share, man. I've been everywhere. I recently just came back from our one-hour special that we did on PBS called Poland the Royal Tour and an obligatory trip within Poland that I did more than once and that you need to do at least once uh, is the trip I did to Auschwitz, uh, the infamous uh, Nazi death camp that was so much a part of the imagery that we see when we talk about uh, what they did uh, to six million Jews and ethnic Poles and everybody else during World War II. But until you go there, and until you go in those barracks, and until you walk into those rooms, and and I mean, it's it's pretty tough, uh, but it's, it's so emotional and it's so moving. And what I find so um, refreshing, if I can even use that word, is that very much like Nagasaki and Hiroshima, uh, with Japanese school children, uh, Polish school children are required as part of their s- courses to at least go to Auschwitz to see it, like the Japanese school children go to the atomic bomb sites of Nagasaki and, and Hiroshima, because there's the old line that if you you know can't remember history, you're da- you're you're basically damned to repeat it. Uh, my next guest knows a lot about that history. She's the historian at the United States Holocaust Memorial, Dr. Edward. Edna Friedberg, how are you? Hi, very glad to be here, Peter. I mean, I w- we were just talking off camera or off mic. It's been 25, almost 26 years since since it opened. I mean, it seems just like yesterday. Yeah, and I can tell you that the creators of this museum, and uh, I've only worked here for 19 years, so I'm not considered a founder. Oh, you're a baby. A yeah. baby. Um, they were worried that no one would come, that the subject matter is so heavy and that people come on a family vacation or a school trip to Washington and that it would be uh, daunting or overwhelming um, and a deterrent to come. We've- Although, you know what? Don't discount school trips to Washington. That's I remember my first trip was a school trip to Washington. And, you know, we, we went to see the FBI, the Washington Monument. Blah, blah. But now you're now part of that, of, of, of that itinerary. And we feel very grateful to be uh, one of the most highly visited museums in D.C. We get around 1.8 million visitors each year, and around a quarter of those are school kids. So if you were to walk into the Holocaust Museum today, you would be surrounded by what feels like every eighth grade class trip in the country. And let me tell you from my own personal experience when I was a kid, and also my experience watching kids in your museum. When I was you know, 11 years old or 10 years old on my first little class trip, you couldn't shut me up. Wherever we went, and it wasn't just me, every kid in the class, we were, we were always joking around and kidding, and people were telling us to be quiet, we weren't. You go into your museum, nobody's cutting up. They're all like with their mouths open, and they're, t- they're like inhaling. They're taking this in. Yeah, and you see that it provokes really deep, reflective conversations between parents and children, between adults, within religious communities, uh, between people of political differences. And that's one of the things that we feel is very important, that we are a convening place where it doesn't matter what your political background is, uh, where in the country you're from, whether you're international, that this is a human story. Well, it's almost inescapable, but this is up close and personal and in your face about man's inhumanity to man. Yeah, and since you mentioned your visit uh, to Auschwitz, to the Auschwitz-Birkenau Killing Center, 
most people will not have the opportunity, as valuable as it would be, to visit one of these actual sites. And so we are here as a service to the American people, bringing in the actual uh, physical evidence, uh, the criminal evidence, if you will, of the most massive crime ever committed. And you can see that in person at the Holocaust Museum every day. Now, is it a rotating exhibit? I mean, how are you actually doing it? So we have a core exhibit, our permanent exhibition, uh, which is there all the time since we opened, and people can reserve timed passes in advance for that. You might have heard there are lines. It's really just for crowd control. It's free of charge, but you can reserve them online. We have a major special exhibition right now, uh, which we put up for our 25th anniversary, called Americans in the Holocaust. And what it is, it's the story of us. It's not just about President Roosevelt or what our government did or didn't do. It's about what average people knew at the time, what was in their newspaper when they had their morning cup of coffee. And what did they not do about it? Yes. Right? How does knowledge translate or not translate into action? We have public opinion poll numbers from the late 1930s, which visitors can see if they come to this exhibition, that show that vast majorities, around 90% of Americans, did not approve of German treatment of Jews at the time, but a similar number did not believe that the United States should allow more refugees, more immigrants in at the time to escape. Interesting parallels to this very moment. We feel that there are so many resonances that people can find in this history, um, whether it's seeing the ways that isolationism and racism affect our willingness to be compassionate, uh, whether it's about the place of the United States in the world. I'll tell you a statistic that may uh, surprise you. We are so used to thinking about the United States as a superpower. As a leader. As a leader. At the time that World War II began, the United States military was only 17th in the world in size. So the perspective is very different, and part of what we do in the exhibition is make sure that the visitors are seeing what Americans could have seen in that moment. No 2020 hindsight. Where are the wagons? The wagon is too slow. Can't you ride? It's not that he can't ride. How is it you put it home? They're dangerous at both ends and crafty in the middle. Why would I want anything with a mind of its own bobbing about between my legs? My next chef has an interesting, fascinating story. I said my next chef, didn't I? Yes, sir. Well, you are, actually. You're my next guest and my next chef. In fact, you're the only chef today. Uh, he's the executive chef here at the Marriott Wardman Park. But you started out, his name is Abdel Agnew. Yes, sir. You, and from Morocco. Yeah. So you speak French, of course. Of course, yes, of course you do. Well, we'll speak English today, but we'll talk about that later. But you started as a train engineer? Actually, I was a train engineer. I went to engineering school in France and... Went back to Morocco, and I was a train engineer. And how did you make the transition? Well, the transition was, I was still, my father still had the restaurant because I grew uh. up in the restaurant business, and I used to work in the weekends with him, helping him up with the restaurant. And then after two years, I quit the train engineering job. I went back to the restaurant, worked with him, then I flew back to the U.S. And then you went to the CIA. And I went to the CIA, the no, best school in the world. Right. We're not talking about uh, about Virginia. We're talking about upstate New York. I'm talking about the real thing. The yep. Culinary Institute Hyde of America. Park in New York. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Right next to the Poughkeepsie. Absolutely. So when you moved to that, when you went to the CIA, you were taking what you'd learned from your father. Exactly. But that was a different kind of st style of cooking. Yeah, I had to, exactly. I had to prove myself. I, actually, I had to go to prove myself to the school when I went to New York City, and I was knocking at some chef's doors, 
and I asked him if I can work for free just to gain that experience to show the school that I actually have the American experience. Did anybody take you up on it? Oh, they loved it because especially when I had the accent, they said this guy has probably had the, the French thing, you know. They asked you those questions, you hired. Because at those days, you know, I mean, if you have the little French accent, even though I'm from Morocco. So you got away with murder, didn't you? I got away with yeah, murder. Yeah, you did. Exactly. Okay, I knew that, right? Exactly. At what point did they find out that the French accent wasn't enough? Well, when they found out the French accent wasn't enough, they didn't care because they saw how fast I was preparing the food and they loved it, so they didn't really care. Then you started talking Brooklyn. Then we started talking Brooklyn <laughs> or Italian. So you have a hotel here with more than 1,100 rooms. Yes, sir. Uh, how many meals a day are you doing? Well, we average here two, 3,000, 4,000 meals a day, depend. So, so your purchasing situation here is you've got to really figure this out as a science. Of course. Actually, I use what I learned from the engineering school. I applied it to my cooking skill, believe it or not. I multiply, divide. I'm really good in math. When I worked here as a banquet chef, we used to do a lot more than these numbers. We used to do sometimes up to eight to 9,000 people. A day. Because it was then we had some groups. We had then the Army, the Navy, and we had some AOL when AOL was AOL. So it was. So we're lot. talking a lot of chicken. A lot of chicken, a lot of chicken. <laughs> well, he, Have we ever gotten out of that? You know, every time I go to a big fundraising dinner, I never eat because I know what I'm going to get. You know, it's always going to either be chicken. Filet mignon. Or fil- exactly. Yeah. Have you been able to get out of that rut? Oh, yeah. it's uh, we, l- Lately, there's groups that are more like uh, knowledgeable about the food because the TV, the TV shows. So there's a lot of groups that are trying to discover new things compared to years ago. They're more like confident and they trust the chefs to come up with a different uh, Okay, so idea. what have you come up with as a different idea to replace, not to necessarily fully replace the chicken, but at least give mm-hmm. them an option? Well, the option I did a long time before it was an endangered species was the sea bass. It was a big hit, and people were just went crazy about it because it was, it was a really good fish. It's a, you, can, you cannot like it. And then, of course, we ventured with the other proteins, not just the filet New York strip, some other cuts of the meat. So people would start adventuring, and uh, it worked for both. It was a win-win-win situation for all of us. Now, are people getting healthier? Oh, definitely. Uh, there is no doubt about it. Because, because anytime special- I go to one of these dinners and I say, I'm not a meat eater, but I'm not a, like a strict vegetarian, I'm a pescatarian. But if I say, listen, I'm not eating meat, I always get, you know, zucchini. Well, not here. No? Because this chef here actually wrote a book about veganism, but we love what we do. And we take care. The first thing I did when I came to this hotel was changing the vegetable plate. It's like the vegetable plate has to be perfect. It has to have protein. It has to look good. It has to look better than the actual plate because you don't know who's eating this plate. You may be the vice president or the president of the group. So make sure it looks good because they're paying the same money as the other people. So what did you do on that plate? Well, I made sure it has protein and it looked good and the fresh vegetables were different than the other people. So if you're a vegan or vegetarian, you're sitting down and you look next to you, the plate next to you does not have the same vegetable you have. You have more vegetable more variety and proteins such as beans, something healthy for you like quinoa or uh, you know chickpeas or things like that. So you don't feel like you left out. Plus, you probably present it differently. Absolutely, we present it in a way that's been attractive. For instance, you take roasted beets. You stuff it, and it has it stand up. And then in the bottom, you make a little design with some julienne vegetables. So when you look at the plate, you're like, wow, this is a vegetarian plate? So that's the idea, and we continue doing it. What's the Other than the chicken, what's the biggest volume thing you're making here? 
The biggest volume, I think you said it before, was the filet mignon, but chicken is always the first, so because the dinners. But the biggest volume actually we make is the buffets, because people now, they like to offer different choices to their clients. So the purchase buffets at lunch is time. So we have a lot of lunches. So You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.